Kimberly C. Paul. As I travel throughout each state, I realize that death is just a moment. It is how we live until that moment that matters. Finding connection with friends, family, and complete strangers. Journey with me. This is the Live Well, Die Well Tour. So here I am in Eureka on the Live Well, Die Well tour. And, you know, the best thing about being on tour is you run into people that you've had, you know, mainly social media relationships. But I'm here with uh, in the the hallways of one of the most innovative places that I've found in so far 41 states that have driven to resolution care and and Michael Fracton is the medical director and I'm now looking at you last time we were <laughs> we were doing this via over the internet and um and we've actually become really close friends you know throughout the years within well and uh it, it's really great to kind of be able to look at you in the eyes it's super wonderful to be in 3D with you. <laughs> yeah. So I know we've chatted before uh, about what you're doing. And like I was walking through your office, which is such a cool place to be. But a couple of years ago, it was like you had 12 employees. And now I feel like this huge, like you've had a lot of growth. But before we even start talking about how you are fulfilling the needs in your community, Let's revisit, like, what are you doing? How are you doing it? And why are you doing it? In a nutshell, the reason I'm doing it is because it has to be done. And it hurt me that it wasn't being done um, before I started. And, and pretty frankly, in 2014, 2013, I was burned out. I had four to five times as many requests for my service as I could provide. And I had no robust team. I had no framework or model of care. I had no way to sustainably resource uh, the kind of work that people need. And when people get sick, they need more support. They need more support way before they're uh, one foot in the grave and at the end of their life, they need more support while they're managing the impact of really serious illnesses and limited more limited survival and all the rest. And um, the folks that we take care of are primarily in the safety net and they, they need a ton of support for housing, for food, for managing their medicines, for helping them develop greater um, and impactful health literacy uh, they need psycho-spiritual support to manage their addictions and mental health issues. They need caregiving support. And they frankly need somebody sometimes to drive them around mm. and get them from place to place and pick up their prescriptions. And some of our folks are illiterate and they need someone to help organize um, their appointments and their medications so that whatever we've got to offer them from the healthcare system can actually actualize mm. and improve well-being. Um, so all of that stuff was real and true and I couldn't avert my gaze. Mm. So it hurt. Um, and it was just circumstances and a few lucky ideas that made 2014 the year that we launched resolution care network. 
Excuse me, that is not a coronavirus cough. <laughs> I hope not, no. Okay. <laughs> Just letting the world know. Um, so yeah, in, in 2014, a few ideas came together. One was um, um, Project Echo, which is an amazing learning modality using video conferencing to connect uh, super specialists with primary care providers. And I learned about Project Echo and I said, it's like perfect for me to extend what I know or 85% of what I know that any primary care provider, any nurse, any even oncologist who was interested would be able to grasp most of what we do that we call primary palliative care. Um, And so I saw that idea. The other is I noticed this like supercomputer in my pocket Uh, called a smartphone. Mm -hmm. And I figured there was some way I could use that to advance, um, uh, advance my ability to to reach people. And so I started playing around with video conferencing and got a opportunity to, to post on something called Google helpouts, which integrated uh, video conferencing, scheduling, SMS and a website. And I, I did some, um, some general, uh, palliative care counseling to people, not practicing medicine across the country, but made it myself available for free. That's um, amazing. And just to, to find out like sure. how, how did it work? How did it work relationally to interact with people through video conferencing? And in about 10 seconds of the first encounter, I was like, Oh my God, this so works. And after a few more, I was like, okay, this is a thing. And nobody else had uh, quite yet explored that space. And then a friend of mine who's a graphic designer um, crowdfunded a uh, large format printer for her studio. And in about three weeks, she had twice the printer she wanted uh, through a Kickstarter campaign. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. I was like, oh, mind blown. Yeah. My hands are going away from my head (laughs) in the visual gesture of mind blown. Seriously. It's because it's all about volume. People want to give, but they can't fund you. And and I th- still think that crowdfunding is like communities across wherever they're giving from are coming collectively together to to solve a social issue. And People need to feel their, their own efficacy. Absolutely. And if, they, if they've got five bucks and can drop it in there and fill it out, they feel that. Absolutely. People need to feel that. People need to feel like they're voting for what matters mm-hmm. with their dollars or with their votes. Um, they need to know. They need to know that they have something to do with how this world unfolds and gets created. And so it's it's a super cool thing. And also that with that, I, I had kind of dropped into the world of social media and wondered, how can I not just watch cat videos and share what I had for lunch, <laughs> but how could I advance the game and forward sure. the action? And the things that were most important to me through through those kinds of engagements and relationships. Um, so in in the fall of 2014, I launched a crowdfunding campaign, raised about 140 thousand dollars from about 550 individual people. The first donor was my daughter, who oh, wow, gave me 17.35, I think it was 17 dollars and 35 cents. Oh wow, that's cute. And um, in January 2015, we walked into not an office space like this, but a donated thousand square foot space that was pretty quickly overfilled by our team. And fast forward, now we're in a bigger space. I'll talk a little bit about the office just because it's contextually irrelevant. 
Um, but we're taking care of about 200 people um, all over the state of California. Uh, so we, not just here in Humboldt County or Eureka, it's all over. Everywhere. Amazing. Now, most, most of our folks are concentrated in the upper third of the state of sure. California before it bends at San Francisco and Sacramento. Most of our folks are up there, but we have contracts that allow us to take care of people all over the state, and we have done so. Oh, um, cool. Um, and so we're, um, we're also learning all the lessons that come with starting things up. Um, I backed into this role of um, entrepreneur or business developer, and the learning curve for me has been probably even steeper than what it was when I was a resident in medicine. Wow. Uh, there's so much to learn about what it takes to build an organization, what it takes to get everybody paddling in the same direction, what it takes to lead, uh, and what it takes to pay the bills. Sure. Um, and for the last couple of years, we've been able, we've had black ink for two years, uh, and we've been around for about five. That's um, amazing. That's amazing. Now, tell me. I it's mean, crazy. I can't even imagine how it happened, actually. It's, the whole thing is like a blur of like truck, tanker trucks full of coffee and a lot of communication. I'm right there with you <laughs> that I, I don't even know how I'm here. And I'm at that 41 states are behind me. I have no clue how it fell into place to come to fruition. So I get you on that. But how how are you? Um, what is what is supporting this financially? I mean, what? How do you get reimbursement, or do you? Or talk to me a little bit about how you were sustaining. Totally critical question, um, and central. Um, probably, I gave you the three ideas that launched us. The fourth idea, the idea of alternative payment models or value-based contracting to provide for team-based care going forward over time. That's the idea that actually sustained us. Wow. Um, so. We have contracts with four health plans currently, and we expect to have more. We're seeing people only in the state of California, but we expect to be uh, extending our reach nationally. Um, and the difference is that most of healthcare, almost all of healthcare, has paid for it on a transaction. I want a double, uh, double skinny latte with soy. It costs that much money. You want um, a doctor's appointment to see your sore throat. They look at your throat. They give you a prescription. That's a transaction. Um, none of that kind of transactional nature in healthcare supports the relational needs of people who are trying to navigate and don't know what they need tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, or three months from now. And so palliative care as a team-based intervention doesn't lend itself to fee-for-service billing. If you bill for palliative care on the basis of fee-for-service, the only biller really are your licensed professional, your sure. provider, your doctor. And so you get a model that's centered around the doctor rather than around the people you're caring for. And the broad, nimble ability of a team, of a social work, nurse, chaplain, community health worker, care coordinator, to actually recognize better than the doctor what the needs are uh, for individuals. If you make dependent all your revenue on the activities of the doctor, not only do you have a burned out doctor who can't keep up, but you also don't have the revenue required to support that whole team, which is the only way to work with super sick people who are dealing with their own mortality 
all day long, every day. You got to do it with a team. Mm-hmm. No one person can stand in that kind of heat all day long, every day. That's what was part of my burnout before I got here. And so the greatest joy for me with Resolution Care Network is that I'm a part of a team. Wow. And you don't, you kind of share the, not that it's a burden, but you share the care. And what you said something very interesting, which I find complicated in the acute setting, um, which is services that are centered around the patient. You know, we hear patient-centered, we hear a lot of patient this, but when you're dealing with reimbursement and a model of reimbursement, it really is about who is reimbursable and how do you create a sustainable model, you're right, around who can make the money to make it sustainable. So talk to me. How- so, you, I mean, just to, to go a little deeper with that, you really do have to get the economics right. Like economics, not just who's paying the bill, but how are they paying the bill? How are they measuring value? How are you related? Are you related to the person that's paying the bill in an antagonistic way? Are you negotiating for this much money per visit versus that much money per visit? Are they throwing down to obstruct you from getting the things that you know will bring value to people? Is it that kind of old school 20th century traditional fee-for-service antagonism with a health insurance plan? Or are you aligned as partners with a health insurance plan who has a, a, a mission to provide the right care for the right people in the right way at the right time at the lowest cost that delivers value, satisfaction, um, and greater well-being. And what value-based payment or this kind of relational economics is, they pay us for the people that they define as eligible to receive our care, they pay us on a monthly basis, a revenue chunk that allows us to budget and allows us to respond as needs go up by shifting resources towards the individuals who have greater needs and as needs go down to shift towards lighter touch of those folks and to be able to look for things other than solving measurable hemoglobin A1Cs and cholesterol levels. Something that has a code. Something that has a code, but shift your attention to patient-reported well-being, satisfaction, and the avoidance of unnecessary or avoidable expense. And so when you've got the alignment in those economics around relational benefit, then going forward over time, all boats rise and everybody gets what they need. We focus our attention on improving quality of life and well-being, and we let the health insurance people decide who they want to give this kind of extra care to because we're an extra layer of support around people. Um, you'll notice, or maybe you'll notice, that when you say patients, I say people. Around right. here, we try, although we, we trip on it too, but we try to remember that we don't take care of any patients. We take care of only people, and we do it with other people. You know what? What I've come to know in my this tour is language is so important. Um, and I, and I believe that yes, we do get hung, hung up on what I call med speak, but when you humanize, uh, the, the person that you are, are providing supportive care to, suddenly it's not about a diagnosis or a disease. It's about the actual person. So I definitely love that. Well, and when you humanize mm. your teammates in response 
to people going through these horrendously difficult life experiences, your nurse becomes Tanya, mm. not just a nurse. They bring their skill set, their experience, their chops as a nurse, and they bring their persona. They bring their Tanya. They bring their Lori. They bring their Paula. They bring their humanity and their own life experience. And I would say about half of the value that our team members bring come from their licensure and about half of their value just comes from their humanity. Oh, I love it. When are, so, you know, I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina. When can we bring something there? Because, Day after tomorrow. You, uh, I'm telling you, I'm so into this because you are not only taking care of the people you serve, but the people that are providing the service. And that's what I think is so unique and that I don't see in a lot of other places. Well, when you think about the people that you're working with every day as nurses or FTEs, they start to kind of, the color and depth of them starts to you know, fade into the spreadsheet. Um, and this is a, you know, it's an ever present challenge because we've got to rigorously run an operation so that we're actually taking in a little bit more money than we're putting out so that everybody gets paid and their families get what they need and our benefits keep getting better and all of that. At the same time, you've got to recognize, not be fooled, that you've got some sort of generic nurse or social worker or chaplain or community health worker or whoever you're working with. These are all unique individuals. And I have uh, learned a lot of lessons mm, sure. about how to guide and train and mentor those people, um, both in their professional strengths and development, but also in the personal work that needs to be done in order to become valuable mm. to people who are personally getting threatened by their own extinction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, when I left uh, full-time and I call it kind of corporate hospice care now because of that focus on reimbursement and, and, and becoming a business, which I feel devastated to even say that because the field, I love hospice and, and what it's done, but I would rather be paid less and create an environment that everyone's winning. Um, and I, I think that most people who are, see this not as a business, but as a field, um, feel that way. Uh, and I love that. So one question, do you not, you do not get reimbursement from Medicare or do you bill under Medicare or is it through the contracts that you? Is it okay if I say we get shit reimbursement from Medicare? Is that <laughs> sure. okay yeah, for yeah, your yeah, uh, yeah, audience? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when we bill fee-for-service for people who happen to be very, very sick, uh, very, very poor and old, we actually can collect with very thoughtful, uh, disciplined, and uh, uh, our best possible billing structures, we can get paid about a third of what it costs to take care of them. Wow. When we work with, for example, our partners at Partnership Health Plan, a Medicaid or Medi-Cal managed care organization, we've built a contract that allows us to not have to code for every little detail of what we do, but they define who's eligible, we enroll them, and then we get paid uh, exactly, essentially, what it costs, maybe plus a little bit uh, for growth and resilience. Um, that works 
so that we have about 80% of our people are safety net people. They're people that are young and poor and sick. But the disparity between those that are young and poor and sick and those that are old and poor and sick is desperate mm. and terrible because most of the people who have a palliative care need that's easy to define are old and many of them poor and sick. We also have uh, contracts with um, some progressive uh, California-based health insurance companies, commercial insurance companies. Blue Shield of California wow. is um, powerfully important to us, as well as HealthNet and California Health and Wellness. And we're in discussions to extend the range of um, partnerships with but other health sounds, plans. They sound like they understand what you're doing. So it's this ever flexibility because no one person or yeah, no one person is the same. Well, they don't, they don't really have to understand uh, what we're doing because it is so different from everything else that they've done. Um, but they do have to be able to do the mathematics and sure. show that for their stakeholders, they're saving money. And so, in the care of people with uh, uh, with Medicaid as their insurance company, we've did, we've shown that for every dollar spent on the care that we provide to those folks, that the health plan and their budget um, benefits to the tune of three dollars. So, for every dollar spent, they save three, and that's in the very roughest, highest sure. touch, social determinant loaded. Uh, Medicaid population. Wow. We know we're doing better than that with other kinds of populations. So your team is uh, kind of taking care of a person in your community. What does that look like? Um, and I know, you know, every person's different, but what does that look like? So individuals who are listening can sort of picture you know, some of your outcomes, what are, and maybe you can think of a case that you can pull out and, and say, Hey, this is what they wanted. This is how we achieved that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll speak more generically and then I'll tell a couple of stories. Sure, sure. Um, uh, the people that we see, we get referrals from the traditional mechanisms through hospital discharges, through the specialty and primary care uh, practices in our community they send them to us. We assess them for eligibility. We plug them into the intake team. We get their consents and their all that kind of stuff and their medical records together. And then we go out and meet them. And either we go out and meet them in person or we go out and meet them uh, using remote technology, using video conferencing. Um, our team begins the process of getting to know and doing assessments in all the domains, social work, nursing, uh, chaplaincy, and then sort of the pragmatics of our community health workers, as well as the provider. And that all happens within the first few weeks. We get everybody touches them in some way. All of the work that we do, we do at home. And about 40, 45% of the work that we do, we do by video conferencing to people in their home. So we're also teaching them how to engage with us in a new sort of a way and uh, that has all of its cha challenges, but quite honestly is way better than real life. Mm. Um, over time, then, we have, depending on the health plan agreements that we've made, we have certain things that we have to accomplish and document on a regular basis. Uh, but mostly what we're doing is identifying the things that are most important to these people, what matters to them, and advancing our efforts to do that. The things that matter are the things that matter in, in 
50 states and all over the world. It's like relieve prevention and avoidance of suffering and symptoms. Um, uh, most often people want to be cared for at home. And most often they want uh, the assistance uh, and support, all the resources available for the people that love and care for them. Many of them are kind of interested in this vague idea of healing at the close of life or as life completes itself. Um, some people have loose ends. Some people have dreams and bucket lists and things like that. We get all involved in all that stuff. We oh, wow. reunite families that have been estranged. We um, go as far up Maslow's hierarchy oh, as wow. circumstances allow. Um, for a lot of our folks, because they're in the safety net, um, we don't really even get to crawl up onto Maslow's right, hierarchy. Right. <laughs> we're trying. We're looking up at the base from below. Sure. Um, the the story I'll tell you is a, a gentleman who. Uh, has been essentially either homeless or incarcerated his entire life, born of trauma and just horror stories from uh, childhood abuse. And it manifested in addiction, homelessness, and all the rest of it. And the thing that mattered most to that person at the end of his life was to stay out of the hospital and to get a place of his own for the first time. Mm. And so we worked with him for nearly a year. We poured tons of resources. We asked ourselves you know, are we doing too much? Are we doing too little? When he pawned two phones that we uh, obtained for him, <laughs> we decided no more phones. Right. Right. Um, but he couldn't stop using methamphetamine. He couldn't stop um, cycling through. He couldn't stop flailing with his sure. medicines. So we put uh, a lot of resources into him over time and created for him a sort of surrogate family. We did put him in. Uh, a housing situation, his own place for the last month or two of his life. He wasn't a guy that hospice would have felt comfortable or quote safe caring for because he was so wild and all over the place and using drugs and all the rest of it. We have a very harm reduction model. We preserve and maintain the safety of our team and we listen to their concerns that way and double up or have occasionally, maybe twice in five years, said, no, it's not okay for you to pick up a gun and wave it at our team members. That was, that was the one extreme one I could think of. <laughs> we said no more. It was a BB gun, but still. We yeah, said, sure. no, not okay. <laughs> no bueno. Um, no but that doesn't happen too, too often. Um, but this fellow um, – we reduced his hospitalization a little, not a lot, because he just kept cycling through because he wouldn't take his medicines. Um, but at the end of his life, we had got his advanced care planning done. We got the right person in his crazy world to um, document his wishes and advance them when he uh, crashed and was in the intensive care unit. So we shifted him to comfort care. His family was in communication. We got them to the bedside and they were there and we ran a memorial service for him at the rescue mission here in Eureka just last week. Wow. So that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, <coughs> excuse me, are people that um, don't live underneath Maslow's hierarchy. Um, they're um, reaching for healing. They know it and they're grappling with, um, the nature of their lives, legacy, um, the sort of more self-actualized or spiritually attuned folks. 
And so we're currently caring for a guy who's a writer, and a teacher, um, and uh, we were able to help him manage uh, what some people call denial, mm-hmm. uh, what some what I call kind of human resistance mm-hmm. to the truth, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I can relate to Me most too. every day. <laughs> Me too. Um, and we helped him get out of uh, a tertiary care hospital back to his home as he was wrapping his head around his dying from pancreatic cancer um, and uh, got him smoothly and seamlessly transitioned to hospice. Um, and um, because they didn't have a health plan benefit, but they did have resources, they were able to pay uh, our monthly fee nice. directly. So some people who have resources and can recognize the value of what we do will choose to to uh, write the check and, and pay us what it costs to, to do this work. You know what I've what I've thought also when you bring up um, just I, I guess you would call it private pay or self pay or whatever um, is that through the forty one states that I've been through I've had a little bit of accidents in the RV whether it's you know a paring knife going through my thumb yeah. and I I go to these emergency um, I guess that they're called urgent care and the first thing I say is I'm pri- I'm paying for it don't even think about my insurance. And I get this cheaper bill, <laughs> this enormous cheaper bill. Plus, when I go to the pharmacy, I don't have insurance. I'm going to just private pay. And good RX is like, well, we got a coupon for you. You know, it just seems, and I, I, I guess I'm looking for your opinion. It's like, it just seems like you get more um, for less with this whole self-pay um, you know, taking out that middle insurance idea, what is, what is your thing when it comes to caring pe- for people who have some means? Do you guys have a sliding scale in some a- aspects? Too? Yeah, we, we do slide the scale, but we, we generally ask for an amount. But if dropping it a couple of 300 bucks is what will make the difference, we, we will do that. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I think that when we're engaging with people around self-pay, because people are so attuned to consumerism and transactional uh, exchange economics, it, sometimes it takes a little bit, well, what do I get for my... And what you get is you get us. And so what I'm trying to do is just sell them on trusting us and being trustworthy. And that usually goes pretty well. But it's oftentimes it's a little bit of a... A, a squeeze or a, a stress. I can't help but tell you. I guess I'm just going to tell you. I just got my bill for my colonoscopy and a hemorrhoid surgery, which is about 40 minutes in the operating room. My bill from the hospital was forty-one thousand dollars. <laughs> what? Now, the insurance company negotiated it down to ten. I guess. And my copay turns out to be about $3,500. Um, but how does that, that – that's not real economics. Those mm-hmm. represent the, some duct tape and bubble gum together, uh, unaligned, non-organized approach to matching the funds it takes to provide the services required. That's screwed up. Yeah. I mean, and I, I guess because of my personal experience, uh, I, my eyes were open 
by it. And another thing my eyes were opened by was I never knew how much it cost before. I just paid my $10, yeah, my deductible, and I never knew what was being charged to my insurance. And I think it's made me more conscious, especially when, when I don't want government telling me what I can do based on a reimbursement benefit, but I want to, someone to see me as a human being and, and grow with me or go, come, come on this journey with me. Um, and that's where I see you guys, you know, that, that it's really about journeying through with someone and, and going back to the guy that was struggling with drugs and stuff. What, what you didn't mention, which I know you did provide, was connection. Totally. And no, he he, re, he he related to us as the f- his own family was estranged entirely until the very end that we invited them in. Uh, they wouldn't come close to him because he was such a mess. Um, but he related to us. He called us the dream team. Oh, wow. We were his surrogate family, yeah. and we provide him all that connection. He left this world knowing people loved him and, and cared the, for him. And the community of people at the mission. He'd, he'd been living here in Humboldt County in and out of the mission for so many years that the people there showed up for him at a memorial service and the chaplain down at the mission uh, committed after having that experience to have a memorial service mm-hmm. for anybody who passes away who's part of that community. Um, those are the chaplain today in our discussion of this was just noting that there are corollary benefits to the work that we do that extend well beyond the people that we care for. Absolutely. And that's probably one of the greatest benefits that is so unrecognized in the medical field uh, of connection. And and I think what you, and I do believe what you guys are providing uh, to everyone is, is this form of connection and when you're connected some with someone, you have the ability and the relationship to have these difficult conversations in a very unscripted way um, because you're family. That's right. And that's, that's what I feel is missing a lot of times. Well, I, I think there's, there's an element of explanation. Um, one of the troubles with families is that they're all intertwangled with each other's stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of dynamics. Right? Sure. I come from a family. <laughs> me too. Me okay. too. <laughs> you too? Yeah. <laughs> totally. Okay. Um, and so it's a very delicate uh, high wire act to um, come very, very close to people going through very, very, very much without getting all caught up in the energies and dramas and choices that they're making or without getting too attached to how this all turns out. And this is one of the places where I'm currently really focused on the development of this organization and its culture. Um, because we have been from the beginning, we launched with the strength of social warriors. Mm. Like we wanted to get out there and solve the problems that weren't being solved and push against the resistance and up against the wall. You know, we're just like, you know, we brought everything to bear with a kind of a heroic fire and we we've paid for that. Um, and it's now time for us to grow up a little bit and to alter our culture so that it's more sustainable and not just the impassioned fight, fight, fight for whatever you need and leave whatever happens in the wake. Uh, we need solid 
reliable, sustainable relationships with all of the different people that are working in all kinds of different institutions locally and agencies that are you know up against their own internal challenges. And I think, uh, well, I'll just say I'm sorry to anybody who felt I stepped on their toes because I was too righteous or arrogant about what I thought was important. Well, I, I think that's passion. And sometimes passion takes over, just like me. You know, back in the halls of hospice, you're passionate, um, yet you do tend to kind of learn you can never put your finger in someone else's eye when you're trying to live in the same boat and row together. You know, it's a, it is a very fine line. Um, and, and, I, I, and we have to play that too. Even with the people in Washington who are making these policies, um, you can't walk in telling them they're wrong. You got to walk in to say, how can we improve? What do you need? Because we need them. Yeah, We exactly. absolutely need them on to understand what it's like at the bedside. Um, so yes, I know we're, we're chatting away, but where do you hope uh, this goes. I mean, you say nationally you're coming to Wilmington. Um, but where, where do you, where do you hope, what are your goals in the next year? Well, the goals of the next year really have to do with consolidating everything we've learned now and building the platform from which we can grow. And then I want to start to put to work all of my relationships that I built and all of the track record that I can demonstrate in order to engage with more collaborative opportunities outside of the state, help people solve community-based problems in other environments where there is no palliative care, particularly passionate about uh, rural and special populations. We hope by the end of the year to be launching efforts with the native communities around here. Um, So I, I think that I can't tell you which state is our next state, but I'm sure I'll know it when I see it, sure. when it comes forward with the right partners, the right capital for investment, um, and the right opportunity. So let's just say those individuals are listening. How do they call you and learn more about what you're doing and, and how to be a part of what you're doing? Yeah, well, I'll call out to, to some specific uh, parts of that audience. Number one, if you're uh, a palliative care professional with an interest in working remotely, um, then I want you to send me an email at michael at resolutioncare.com. Uh, we're continuously interested in inviting people to consider this completely new way of working um, where they can work from other places in the state, other places in the country. If they get the license, that's an opportunity to do things very, very differently than they might have before. Um, and I think there's some real value to considering that. Um, If you happen to be a person of means at a time in your life where you wish to make a donation to a nonprofit organization to support the care of people in your community or people in the communities we serve, um, please send a message to me, michael at resolutioncare.com. If you are the investor type or a different part of uh, the kind of economic cycle and you want to uh, make a solid investment in something that matters, send me an email. Uh, We have an open investment round right now. I won't bore you with the details of it, but if you're interested, send me an email at michael at resolutioncare.com. Everybody else, please do 
take a look at our website, www.resolutioncare.com. Um, and I just can't tell you how thrilled I am to have had this conversation. Yeah. I do have one more question sure, for sure, you, sure. though. Yeah. Have you ever, in your 200-plus podcasts, had one of your guests talk about a hemorrhoidectomy? Never. Okay, good. I'm just checking. I wanted to make sure that there was something distinguished about this interview. <laughs> That's awesome. And you know, I have to – anyone who has great passion like yourself um, has people behind them. Oh and God. you know, walking into your office today and getting to meet some of these – people um <laughs> wow what a cool environment you've been a part of creating mm-hmm. and i think that's really key when we're taking care of individuals facing such a serious illness you know it goes back to how do we take care of those taking care of these sick individuals well i mean just like everybody else too i also just said the people you didn't meet my amazing and talented and brilliant wife julie uh, my daughter bella who inspires me every day, and my son Max, who give me a reason to get the hell out of here and get home right, right. at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, they're not here, but they're here. Oh, they're absolutely here. Michael, thank you so much. Uh, this has been so awesome to look you in the eyes as we have a conversation. Mm-hmm. Keep doing good work. And whenever and however I can uh, support you and maybe even one day work for you, because you just you're the kind of place I would want to work for mm-hmm. and work with um, as, as we try to uh, bring humanity back into healthcare. Um, well, right caring. back at you. I mean, your, your advocacy and this tour and the amount of kind of the, I, I hesitate to use the word network because it's just really, it's a collection of relationships, Absolutely. but the relationships you've built with social media and through your travels are a kind of a, a, a raw resource to uh, cultivate change and activism in the space. So thank you for oh, all thank of you. that. It's a, it's, a, it's a team effort for sure. Totally. And uh, I will say uh, I've, I've become a better person on the road because of those case, occasional people that you meet in an RV, just like last night in Milwaukee Haven and someone, you know, when you have a RV with 34 logos around death and dying, they're like, what's up? <laughs> and you say what you're doing and, because, and why you're doing it and suddenly – tears start forming and they said my mom's in hospice now that's why we're here and so there's no one uh that will not be affected if they haven't already and i i I have this new saying now that the house always wins (laughs) so you know there is no negotiation the house will win and so how do i adjust um my life as i live until the house calls me home <laughs> for we sure. all go home <laughs> give me sure. one give me your website one more time www.resolutioncare.com hey listeners you you've got to go to this website and i know i don't know if your inwell talk is on your website yet is it yeah the well the animal site is somewhere in there but it's easy to find too and well the road less traveled yeah Fratkin. you've got to this way you'll have a personal um experience watching Michael talk about what he's been doing um, right in Northern California, but also check out the website. If you're a physician, palliative physician that really is interested in learning more about it, please contact him. This is how we collectively 
radically change how people face a serious illness. And thank you so much for your time, Michael. For sure. We're totally responsible for the world that is being created um, by us or to us. Uh, Oh, that's a great statement. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. This podcast is produced by Jason Andre with Seven Season Films. If you're interested in telling your story via podcast, look him up. You can find him at sevenseasonfilms.com.